0: It's nice to be back in Louisville. I grew up here, and here's a picture of my family. That was my father, Embry Rucker, and uh, my mother, Mariana, my big brother, Embry, and that's me. I went to high school at St. X, St. Xavier. I was one of the very few non-Catholics there. They used to call me the Jew, (laughs) even though my father was an Episcopal minister. It's you know same difference, <laughs> but uh, and my parents sent there because they had a good science program, and uh, I liked it there, and uh, I went off to Swarthmore College, and uh, majored in mathematics, and uh, I never actually made it back to Louisville. My brother kept living here, so I would come visit him from time to time, and. Uh, Growing up, my brother had a subscription to Evergreen Review, which it was the magazine where the beatniks published. And as a even in the 10th or 11th grade, I remember reading some things by William Burroughs and Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. And I was thinking, I want to be like these guys. This is cool. You know, I want to be cool. And so then uh, in college, after college and grad school, I was pretty much a hippie. I had very long hair. And then uh, the punk thing came in, and I liked that, too. Because at that time, I was unemployed, so I had a lot of anger, bitterness. (laughs) Uh, There was a period, even though I had a PhD in mathematics by then, it was sort of hard to get a job. There was uh, All the older guys had gotten the jobs. So then, uh, that's me and my brother, Embry. He's about to take me on a ride on his motorcycle. And I've got some sort of hand-rolled cigarette there. <laughs> so uh, I got into being a cyberpunk writer. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But these are our three children. And you can see they're cyberpunk as well. <laughs> this was uh, We ended up moving to Lynchburg, Virginia, which at that time was the home of Jerry Falwell and the Moral Majority Movement. Fairly conservative, and it's just sort of one of Fate's jokes that sent me there to be founding cyberpunk science fiction. <laughs> but we, I've always, you know, I grew up in Louisville, so I, I don't mind being in, uh, you know, sort of border state kind of the places, somewhat southern. It's sort of relaxing. I'm relaxing to be back here, and uh, I've always loved Louisville. Now, um, What happened then was uh, I started writing. I'd always wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to be a beatnik writer, but I also wanted to be a science fiction writer. And uh, science fiction at this point, around 1980, was sort of in a slack phase. There'd been, what had happened during the 70s, it's like most of the novels were these books about hereditary aristocrats who were colonels in the Space Navy. And that's really not where I was at, you know. because <laughs> uh, And I had, a, I didn't, I had a, a grudge against the establishment. My friends and I, it was all we could do to keep from being sent to die in Vietnam. Which now they say, well, we didn't really need that war, but I'm sorry a lot of you guys died. And uh, so there was a lot of... You don't forget a thing like that, you know. You're a young man, and uh, they want to kill you. And if you won't go, they call you a coward, and uh, you don't get over that. So, uh, punk. So, punk. What is punk? Basically, in a nutshell, punk is give the finger and walk away. uh, (laughs) So, and what is cyberpunk? Well, cyber is. It's a sort of all-purpose word. When Norbert Wiener was writing his first book on uh, computer, the philosophy of computers, uh, another computer guy said, well, call it cybernetics. And he said, why? He says, well, nobody knows what it means, so you'll always be at an advantage. (laughs) So what cyber is about, it's about two things that we were noticing in the 80s. And this was the fusion of uh, people and machines and fusion of the physical world and the internet world, which is also sometimes called cyberspace. And it's sort of something that's happening in both directions. Because we have robots are, and computers are learning to ha- how to act more like people. They're getting artificial intelligence, imitating us, learning speech recognition. So more and more you're getting this tend of the machines to try to be like us. And the other side of the coin is we're maybe not acting like machines, but we're enhancing ourselves. Uh, most people have a smartphone in their pocket or in their purse. And that's this sort of, it's almost like a cyborg enhancement that you've grafted onto yourself. And you spend an alarming amount of time looking at it, you know? And so we've got this thing of people and robots getting more like each other. And then the environment, there's the physical world is being sort of corrupted by the cyberspace world, or if not corrupted, enhanced, mixed in. And we've got these things, uh, computer graphics, movies, there's this thing of trying to have artificial realities that are more and more like the real world. And then on the other hand, there's the fact that the real world is, has this layer of internet stuff over it all the time. You're always getting messages about what you're seeing and it's more and more interactive. So there's this, So the cyber thing is about the fusion of, of humans and machines. And this was something we noticed in the, uh, 1980s we were like canaries in the coal mine and we were like well let's write about this and then the thing was i don't want to write and i know some of you like star trek but <laughs> that's not the world i want to be in as my friend bruce sterling he says let's get in there with some spray cans and grunge it up those walls are too clean you know this face is just all this beige plastic, and everybody's wearing pajamas, you know? <laughs> we want black leather, we want graffiti, you know? We want some funky stuff in there. So, uh, that's a picture of the fusion of men and machines. It's, uh, <laughs> that's actually, I, I started painting about 20, 15 years ago. That's a painting I did. And in a way, it's my wife and me. Now, talking some more about punk, here's a nice punk image. I I like graffiti that I see uh, out on the streets. I mean, I don't like all of it, but this is a really nice one, this sort of pink crab that I saw on uh, Ocean Beach in San Francisco. And I like the continuous black line around the thing. And somehow pink, pink's funny. It's a punk color, but it's a preppy color. It's a funny fusion there. But anyway, the idea of the punk was we want to enrich the science fiction. We want to have sex and drugs and rock and roll. We want to have anti establishment stuff. As I said, we're really, we don't want to read about generals and one percenters and aristocrats and rich people and CEOs, you know, and and federal agents. We want to read about losers. We want to read about unemployed people. We want to read about grungers and punks and women and people that aren't white and uh, stoners. We just want to read about the, the stuff that we know, the actual people that we live with. And we don't want to do these <laughs> fantasies about imagining our, our rulers, how wonderful they are. You know, I don't want to read a magazine about the British royalty. You know? I, 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 want to, I want to write about the people that I hang out with. And so cyberpunk was this thing of combining these two. So getting into the cyberspace, cyber world reality in the near future, but having it be anti-establishment. And I wrote a novel, Software, that came out in 1982, and that was one of the first cyberpunk books. And uh, it came out in a lot of different editions over the years. And the the very first one looks sort of like, uh, oddly enough, the green one. It looks a little bit like my father. (laughs) And there's this other thing I do. I won't really go into this, but I'll just mention it in passing. A lot of my science fiction is what I call transreal. So it's sort of about my real life as well as being an imaginary science fiction world. And at that time, my father had had a... He'd had a coronary bypass. And this was really very early on. This was, oh gee, I don't know, it was around 1978. And uh, it had a bad effect on him, and he started acting differently. And so then that sort of inspired me, what if there was somebody, maybe this guy was a computer scientist, and the robots wanted to do him a favor, so they came and they cut off the top of his head and ate his brains and then extracted the software from that, and then put that onto a new robot body. I mean, some would call that a favor, some wouldn't, Okay. (laughs) So that was this idea. And by now, this is an idea you've seen lots of times in movies and TV shows, the idea of extracting somebody's soul or software or information out of their brain, and then making that sort of into something like software, and then putting that either on a computer or, even better, on an Android that walks around and looks like a person. Now, actually, I was the first guy who ever wrote a book about that idea, and it wasn't an easy idea to think of. I mean, now it seems obvious and easy, but in 1980, uh, when I was writing the book, in 1979, hardly anybody even knew the word software. That, That wasn't a familiar idea. Back then, a computer was this hulking thing that lived in the basement of some some building on a campus where like the nerdiest people in the world went there and you would never go there in the first place. And this, you know, it just software was an unknown concept. But I uh, I was an academic. So I got this PhD in mathematics and I was on a grant in Heidelberg and I was reading these very abstract, high-level philosophical papers about the mind and could a machine be like a mind? And, Then it sort of came to me, well, we're not actually smart enough to write the software that would be like a person, but if we could just copy it over, then we could do it. So that was the idea behind the book. Now, again, I'm a cyberpunk, so I didn't want to be all noble and scientists explaining things to each other. So I I had these funky sorts of people, like the people you might see in Kentucky. They are the guys who would get the brains out of these people. They were a gang they were called the Little Kidders. and they're sort of like bikers, but uh, hillbillies. <laughs> it's, uh, my wife and I, we'd taken the kids and we'd stayed in a cheap motel in Cocoa Beach, Florida. and there'd been some people like that in the motel with us, and they all had tattoos all over their bodies. And, <laughs> and I was thinking, these are the people that can be in my book, and what they'll do is they'll corner you, and they'll put you in a table with your head sticking out, and then they'll cut off the top of your head. And it works better if you do it while the person's alive. So they'll steal spoons and be eating your brain. And then one of them has an analytical lab in his stomach, and he gets all the software out of the brain. So that was my novel. And... uh, (laughs) So it did pretty well. And uh, I got an award for it. And uh, here's, I wrote a sequel to it called Wetware. And this is the Japanese and the Italian edition of Wetware. And I like the Japanese one, the little anime kind of guy melting into this thing. And uh, the idea in Wetware was the robots get even. So the robots say, you built us and made us intelligent. The robots said, now we're going to build people and put our minds onto the people. the word wetware was a very new word. It was a word, I, was, I think I was one of the very first people to use it. I had learned it from Bruce Sterling. And uh, it's this idea that if you have an organism, you can think of the DNA as being like a code or a program that helps grow that thing. Like an acorn, it's the wetware for an oak tree. OK, and why wet? Well, it's in the cells, and we think of cells as being slimy and full of juice, you know. So it's in there, so it's wet. So wetware, and that's going to be something that'll be very big in the coming century. They also call it genomics, or they can call it uh, wetware engineering, or uh, like that. So uh, that was in wetware, and I sat wetware in Louisville, actually. There was a, they had the Bell of Louisville, and they had robots running the Bell of Louisville. <laughs> so you didn't have to worry about being polite to them. <laughs> and uh, there's a whole lot of other stuff happens in there, but I won't get into that here. Uh, they do have some of my books for sale out there, and there's the Ware Tetralogy. There's the four Ware books in one volume. Um, now, I talked about welcome to your cyberpunk future. Or actually, the t- talk is listed, I think, as the cyberpunk future's coming for you, but I would rather say welcome to the cyberpunk future because it's not coming for you, it's already here. The future's here. The singularity has happened. We're in the new world. Everything's different. It's cyberpunk. Now, some people don't like the word cyberpunk, uh, but to me, it's a good thing, you know? It's, it's saying, I'm in this weird, artificial, future reality. And punk means I'm going to give the finger and walk away. And what, what do I mean by that again? It's, I'm not going to let the 1% control me. Because they're going to try to, and they're never going to stop. And we say we're a free country, and as you can see just from watching politics, they can take your freedom away anytime. It's not like, because it's written on a piece of paper somewhere, that doesn't mean you get to keep it. You have to be there and fight for it, and you can't ever stop. Either you're a rebel or you're a slave. Punk. And the, the good cyberpunk thing that we have now is the internet. Because somehow, it's, to me, it still amazes me. It's like this dragon escaped from a seed. It got loose. And the Internet doesn't belong to the man, you know? The government doesn't own the Internet. Business doesn't own the Internet. It's free. And there isn't any central thing in the Internet. That's a key thing. It's distributed. There's just these servers all over the place and bouncing stuff around. It's out of the barn, out of the box. They'll never get it back. And why did that happen? Well, the guys who designed the Internet were cyberpunks. Now, if you looked at them, you might not say these guys are cyberpunks <laughs> because they're total nerds, okay? <laughs> they're geeks. But there's this thing hanging around in Silicon Valley and being a mathematician, people that look like geeks are often like some of the most bizarre and creative people you'll ever want to meet. And uh, they have strong political opinions, and generally, part of their makeup is that they are rebellious. They don't want the government to tell them what to do. And they made sure when they designed the internet that it would be free for good. My son, Rudy Jr., actually runs an internet company. It's a service provider in San Francisco. Uh, It's called monkeybrains.net. And this is sort of a painting I did of monkeybrains.net. And see, those are the users, all those little balls down there. (laughs) That's a freeway in the background. So, uh, what are some of the good things about the internet? Uh, well, first of all, it's uh, you have a smartphone in your pocket. You've got a universal communication device, sort of a science fictional concept that does video calls. You have access to a total world library. All the information in the world is right there. You can put up any kind of website you want. And uh, you can put anything you want onto it. Now, people say, well, what about terrorism? What about drugs? What about porn? Well, there's you know, certain things that are a little iffy. But people do them anyway. But it's not like there's any political muzzle. You can put up anything you want. And also, it's a like freedom of speech and you've got freedom of the press. Anything you want to publish, you can publish it through the internet. I've even published a few of my books through the internet. You can do this thing that Amazon owns called CreateSpace or something called Lulu. Basically, you just put a PDF of your book up there. It gets listed on Amazon. People can buy it. So there's a lot of good things about the internet. Another thing about it is you're not alone. You kind of live in this cloud, in this cyberspace cloud. You can go around all day messaging people, emailing people, checking your social, your Twitter, your Facebook, and it's like there's this cloud of friends around you, which can be very nice. So that's another great thing that the Internet is doing for us. So there's a lot of really good things. It's one of the There's a tendency to be negative about modern tech, but the internet is really one of the great success stories of of modern times, because it's it's all good, and it's free. It's amazing. Can't believe it. Um, Looking ahead, this is a picture of a writer. Uh, (laughs) Or it's a picture of somebody using the keyboard on their smartphone. There's a One of the things, looking towards the future, cyberpunk in the future, what are some things we can look forward to happening? Well, one thing, we've got to fix the interface problem. I mean, sometimes people who don't think about science fiction much don't quite realize that this is not the terminal level. Things have not stopped. Things are gonna keep changing. I was just looking last night. 150 years ago, Mark Twain was bragging that he was the first person to use a typewriter to write a book. That's only 150 years ago, the first person to use a mechanical typewriter. So 150 years from now, what are they going to be doing? It's you know hard for us to even think about it. That's what science fiction writers do, though. And we are paid very poorly to do this. <laughs> <laughs> That's why most of my life I was a professor as well. And I'd never, I mean, I'm a, quote, successful writer, but I never made enough to live on. So I worked as a math professor to start with. And then uh, when I turned 40, we moved to Silicon Valley, and I started teaching computer science at San Jose State. And I did that for about 20 years. And uh, at first, I had no idea what I was doing. But the other guy said, well, hey, it's easier than math. <laughs> <laughs> so. I figured it out. And I even worked as a programmer for a while. So it was fun. It was a nice change. When my father turned 40, he became an Episcopal priest. But when I turned 40, I became a computer scientist. But it's sort of a conversion thing. I let the chip into my heart. Why deny this? The least of my brethren. Okay. So anyway. The the interface sucks, okay? It's just sad to see people walking along, you know, that's just ridiculous. You know, why are we doing that? And then they say, well, we've got voice recognition. Oh great, I can go down the street talking to nothing like a crazy person. (laughs) That's and everybody hears what I'm saying, you know, and everybody hears the answers. So that's not really gonna work either. What are they gonna do? Well, They've already sort of got subvocal microphones that kind of work sometimes maybe like everything with computers. And then there, another thing that they're sort of just now starting to push is having a, having something you can sort of stick to the back of your neck for instance and it would recognize your brain waves a little bit. You don't want to really wear like a whole hairnet on your head, you know, that's not too cool. You know, that's so you want something kind of unobtrusive that you can stick to your neck. Now, whether it can feed images and things into you could be done. Uh, You've got to be careful with these kinds of things, though. Whatever you do, don't let them implant a chip into you, OK? Because as a computer scientist, I can tell you that they're going to want to upgrade it in about a year. <laughs> this is really good. You've got to get the iPhone 8 in your neck now. <laughs> oh, no, should have been the 10. You can come back next month. <laughs> so you've got to be careful of that stuff. Um, in my science fiction books, I have people, they wear something. I call it an Ovi. It's sort of like a little piece of Play-Doh they put on their neck. So that's one of the things that's going to become, in the fairly near future is some kind of drastic upgrade to the interface. Um, another thing, once we get that, we can get telepathy. Now, if, if you just jumped here from, like, Mark Twain's time, and you saw people with cell phones talking to each other, especially if you didn't explain what it was, or if they had headsets and microphones, which is kind of an unobtrusive way of using your voice recognition, too, you'd say, well, they're, they're reading each other's minds. They're far apart from each other. They know what the other one's thinking. So we're not, in other words, <laughs> We're not that far from telepathy. We're like you know, 80% of the way there. And the trick here is, again, have a better interface. There's another thing about telepathy that is kind of a subtle point. If I want to send you a thought at present, I have to turn the thought into words and then somehow transmit these words to you. And then you have to basically use the words sort of like code almost and you build this metal model of what I'm saying. So it's a sort of three or four step process. I have to code the thoughts into words, transmit the words, they have to decode the words into thought. Now, what would be really cool would be if you could just have the thought be a pattern in your head, and if there's a way to give somebody just a pointer. Sort of like if I have a photo I wanna show people, instead of just sending them the photo, I can put it online And I can say, here's a link to it. You just go to this place, and you'll see the photo. It's on my website, or maybe it's in my brain. I'll give you a link to something that's in my brain. Lots of possible bad things that can happen here. (laughs) Ads. (laughs) One word. (laughs) But uh, that's what science fiction is for. We're the test labs for these ideas. We imagine these scenarios and we try to think of all the, the crazy things that can happen. Uh, speaking of, of cybers, I was sort of dissing old Star Trek. What, what's an example of cyberpunk film? Well, certainly Black Mirror. That was totally a cyberpunk TV series. That was really cool. And then, of course, there's uh, Blade Runner, good old Blade Runner, and The Terminator. When I was in California, I was working at San Jose State University. And the governor at that time was Arnold Schwarzenegger. And I was like, yeah. (laughs) I'm safe. You know? (laughs) I'm a cyberpunk, and the governor is the Terminator. (laughs) You know? Nothing to worry about here. So uh, I kind of miss having him up there. (laughs) I'll be back. Now, uh, let's talk some more about future things. That's me and my wife in Wyoming in, uh, I think it was 2011. And I always think of this picture, that's a picture of us in the afterlife. You know, what would it be like? (laughs) There we are. You know? (laughs) And uh, digital immortality. So going back to what I talked about earlier, this software idea that you can extract your personality somehow out of your life and then make a model of yourself. Now, whether it would be really alive or whether it'd just be a really good model of you, how would we get digital immortality? And I think of it now, because as I'm getting older, you know, there's more and more loved ones and friends that are dead. I I think of my friends from Louisville, uh, my two best friends in high school, Niles Shoning. He died uh, last year, and Michael Doris, he was a, a, actually a well-known writer. He was my best friend at Saint X, and he's been gone for a few years now. And uh, the thing is, you don't really get it when you're younger, but when you get older and you know people that have died, they're really gone. You know, they really do not come back, not even the tiniest bit. You know, they're just zero, flatline. And we don't like that. You know, so what should we do about digital immortality? Well, I don't think the eating brains thing is all that realistic of an option. That's science fiction, okay? I mean, maybe someday, but not now, okay? There's a pretty easy way that actually is already within our abilities, and that's to make you know a very good computer model of somebody. Like, uh, they call it a chat bot, where it's some kind of program where you can talk to it, and it talks back to you. They have a contest every year that the international touring imitation game contest, of who can make a chatbot that people are deceived into thinking that it's an actual person they're talking to. And how would I make a chatbot to emulate a person? Well, the hard way would be to build up the AI to a point where it's had thought processes similar to them. And here again, that's that's probably not going to happen really soon. AI keeps being harder than we thought. Recently they've made some progress. There's something called uh, Deep deep Dream and deep, Deep AI. It's a neural net thing, but I won't really go into that. But it is getting better. But right now there's a cheap and dirty way to do it. It's like I don't have the time, but I have the data. So if I have big data on somebody, if I take all of somebody's email, if I take all their phone messages, if I have a lot of tapes of them talking, or a lot of video of them, I can put that into this box. And I call it a life box. And I've written about this. I actually wrote a book called The Life Box, The Seashell and the Soul. And uh, you ask the thing a question. And what it'll do, it'll do something sort of like a Google search. It'll dive into the life box. And it'll just find some scraps of things that sort of relate to your question. You say, what kind of car did you drive in high school? And it'll go, it'll, you know, zing, search through all the, all the things you've ever written or said, and it'll find some reference to cars that you've had. And the thing is, it might not be a precise answer, but that's actually how conversation is. I mean, you'll ask somebody, did you have any cars in high school? You say, well, I'll tell you about the car I had in college. You know, Because people don't always answer what you ask them, but it feels like conversation anyway, because there's <laughs> some loose relationship. <laughs> Talking to your parents, you know. Uh, so, our grandparents <laughs> but so you get that going, and then you have a, sort of a sense of a conversation so that 's a pretty easy thing to do. You get the what we call the back end in computer science that 's the hidden part that 's this you know maybe a, a billion byte database of all the things it 's especially easier if you 're trying to emulate a writer because then you 've got you know this wealth of, of written things and uh, then the front end is something you know that does the searching, and it could even make a, a realistic-seeming face of the person. That, that's also not that hard to do anymore. So that's a digital immortality. And that's going to be a big, big industry. That's a, I know Hallmark Cards was working on it. <laughs> I'm serious. And there's a, I went to some conferences on digital immortality. And it's, it's something. It's a coming thing. You're going to see some activity on that front. Now, uh, the last future thing I'm going to talk about is like totally out there. And to put it in a nutshell, it's my idea that every object in the world is alive. And if we can figure out how to talk to them, then you're going to have all the computational force you need. Now, why would I say a thing like that? Well, this is a picture of an example of a natural scene. And uh, there's this word that I like to use called gnarl or gnarly. And in computer science, a process that's gnarly is on the edge. It's also what they call chaotic. It's not totally orderly. It's not just random scus, But it has these warped, interesting shapes. And it turns out, any gnarly process is also can be used as a universal computer. If some process is gnarly, it's rich enough to be able to emulate any possible computation that can be done. Now, this is a, here's a photo we took uh, driving through the west. Uh, a gnarly rock, a gnarly tree, and a gnarly cloud. And chaos. They, they grew in a chaotic way. If you look at leaves on a tree, if you look at the leaves fluttering in the breeze, that's chaotic motion. And if you key in on that, you'll notice the leaves, they're not repeating themselves. They're not predictable. But they're not just doing any old thing. You know. There's a limited range of things they do. Chaotic motion, gnarly motion. Now, the idea behind that, then, is <clears throat> even a rock is doing something gnarly. Because what's inside a rock? Well, you've got a septillion atoms. And they're sort of connected by something like springs. So they're all sort of vibrating in there. There's a lot going in in there. And it could easily emulate the computation that's taking place in my brain. If I could just find a way to talk to it. And see, that's the cyberpunks of the future are going to figure out how to talk to rocks. <laughs> and then everything will be a computer and will be safe. <laughs> OK, so uh, I think I'll stop there. And uh, if you want more info, you can go to my web, web page. And there's a buttload of info you can get there.